West Side, how are you guys? You all good today? No? Yes? Right on. Well, my name is Dan Diebel. It's a joy to be with you here on the Lenexa campus and wherever you're experiencing this service, uh, South Room, Speedway, anywhere around the world. We're just pumped to be with you and to be talking about this, this movement from 2,000 years ago. We're in this series called the A2 Revolution. We're talking about the Acts 2. If we go to that fifth book of the Bible, we're looking at how this total ragtag band of misfits, men and women, came together to change the world because they had this crazy idea that Jesus had abandoned the grave, he sits on the throne, and that changes everything for all of history. And if they would just give themselves to him, his spirit would work through them and radically change where they lived, where they worked, where they studied, where they played, just like for you and for me. We're, we're believing that too. I love how Randy Frazee just said, hey, look, Westside, there's no plan B for this. We are burning the ships. We're pushing all of our chips in here on this one thought that what if you and I, what if we banded together? And in all of our normalcy and with all of our quirkiness, what if we came together because we follow the same Jesus, we have the same spirit, and man, are there not needs today in our world? And so we're talking and have been talking about A2 communities. Again, little small kind of pockets of, of people coming together in the name of Jesus to love and be a part of how God wants to redeem all things in the world. I've been a part of, of one such group for about five years, my family and I have. And here's how it started. Uh, 2014 is where this thing really started brewing. Do you know what happened in two, 2014? Any baseball fans in the room or wherever you are? The royals, right? This, the, the, the ascendancy of the royals. And so all of a sudden, people started coming out of their neighborhoods and dudes started kind of sneaking out of the house late at night to go into another dude's basement for a beer and a ball game. And suddenly we became friends. And we're kind of hanging together and, and doing that thing when one guy, who I'll just tell you was at least uh, from the outset, didn't seem spiritually, we'll just say, inclined or interested. But he came to two of my buddies and he, kind of out of the side of his mouth, you could tell he was pretty nervous about it. He said, hey, do you guys ever like um, read the Bible? <laughs> that was his question. And, and you know, you, it took some risk for him to do that. Turns out my buddies did read the Bible and, and do love Jesus. And before he knew it, this little kind of, that little question turned in, into a gathering of households in our, in our neighborhood and some a little outside of our neighborhood, mostly families, a couple of singles sprinkled in. And now we're doing kind of what we see in the scriptures together. We're, we're you know, eating together. We're playing together. We're chasing each other's kids together. We're reading the scriptures together. We're praying. We're trying to serve in our neighborhood. And it's awesome for me personally and for our family. It's been an amazing sense of like, tethering. Like we've, we've needed this community unlike ever before. This community's walked through my wife's uh, chronic pain over the last five years. And we've celebrated together. Not only did we celebrate a World Series, but also a Super Bowl, people. I mean, this is the run that we've made together. And it's been absolutely awesome. In fact, it's been, uh, it's been named, not an A2 community, but something different. And here's how that happened. We're sitting in a living room. And this is early on, maybe three or four times that we've gathered to this point, when one guy says, I just need to tell you this, that 
what's happening here in this room is so important to my wife and I. He said, it's like we've been lost at sea before we found this group. Health issues, this challenge, this issue going on, like all these things have been going on, but you know what you are to us? You're like a buoy out at sea to us. And it was in that moment we go, I think that's our name. We're, we're a buoy. We're a buoy to one another, but we're also a buoy to the outside world. And this has always been Jesus's plan A, what, what Westside, you call A2 communities. And we're in a place as an A2 community. By the way, we're going through all your material and, and, and everything else, and it's been fantastic, where now there's challenges, just like there were challenges in the early church, in the original A2 community. And I want to look at one. It's found in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Here's how it goes. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, up to this point, we'll talk a little bit more about it. There's some challenge, but men, they're growing. They're on an exponential growth curve, and it's awesome. The happy music is playing until right here in this moment. Everything's increasing up and to the right, and the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. They're coming up against some challenges. What's interesting is that up until this point, all the challenge for the early church seemed to be external. There was persecution, imprisonment, mockery. There were all those kinds of things. This, this band of people, they were not understood, nor oftentimes respected. All of the threat came externally, but now there's an internal threat. One, if you're, you know, if you like to think about organizational theory and structure, they've got a scale issue, right? How do they now grow in the thousands when there used to be 12 and then a little over 100, 120, but now there's thousands of people? And how do you actually care for those in your midst? If we go back just a couple of chapters, chapter four, it says that there was no needy person among them. Well, they had a system. They had organization. They actually relied upon their Jewish roots in order to do what they've always done as Jewish people. Every Friday, they would go to the market and they would go house to house collecting food on behalf of the poor. It seems that the early church continued this practice. But now, there's a scale issue, right? It's like, how do you do this when there's now hundreds to thousands of, of widows and people in need? Because what they were trying to do, the tradition was, you would provide 14 meals a week, two meals a day. That's a lot. That's a huge load. And that kind of tension can bring to surface the deeper tension. For them, racial strife. Did you notice? There was a complaint brought by the Hellenistic Jews to the Hebraic Jews. Now, who are those two groups of people? Let's start with the Hebraic Jews. They were the ones living in Jerusalem. This was their home turf. They were living in the motherland from Judea kind of up to Gal Galilee. Like they were the ones who felt like they had protected themselves from the outside world. You could call them the purists. And by the way, the apostles were a part and among the Hebraic Jews. They were the ones that had power in this little uprising uh, community, this little A2 community. The Hellenistic Jews 
That, that word comes from Hellenus, which basically means Greek. If you go back and study you know, history from Alexander the Great, from the Seleucids to the Ptolemies, and even though now the Romans are in charge, their culture is still dominated by a Greek kind of worldview, what's called a Hellenistic worldview. And so while this community is filled with people who are Jesus followers and have a Jewish cultural heritage, they have still found something to argue about. Sound familiar? Huh? I mean, it's not, in that context, it's not just enough for them to go, we love Jesus, we're after this, we're on the mission, and we, we share the same bloodline, we're all Jews. No, what kind of Jew are you? It's not enough just to be American today. What kind of American are you? It's not enough to be a Christian. Hey, well, what kind of Christian are you? It reminds me of uh, something, and I'm going to butcher this quote, but it comes from C.S. Lewis from his science fiction uh, trilogy called Out of the Science Planet. And it, there's this perspective. The narrator is saying, as he's looking at the world from a distance, so imagine like a globe really far away, and you're looking from outer space, and the narration says something like this. These human beings, as a species, have a really interesting way of killing off their own. <laughs> we find ways to say, well, you might be this, but are you that? We find ways to think in binary terms and to bifurcate you, me, them, us. And that's what's happening here in the, in the early church. They have an internal threat. And if it doesn't get resolved, there won't be growth. In fact, let me ask it this way. What is a greater threat? An external threat? You can think about this in business. You can think about this as for your family. What's worse, external threat or internal threat? What do you think? Internal every time, right? How did Rome fall? Was it the Visigoths? Were they mean and bad and, and worse than Rome? They were the, all that, but it was Rome had a soft underbelly. They had their eye off the ball. There were divisions. They were after all sorts of other things, right? How did, the, uh, how did the invaders take the Great Wall of China? Did they just scale the wall and take over? No, actually, they bribed a guard. That's an internal threat. And for us here today as Americans, we go, do we worry about North Korea, Iran? Do we worry about global economy, global pandemics? Absolutely, but what's the worst, most greatest threat? It's an internal one, isn't it? This is true in business. If you're a business leader, if you're a team leader, in fact, the business guru, Jim Collins, dedicated an entire huge amount of research, wrote a book called How the Mighty Fall. And he basically chronicles the question, how do some companies go way up and to the right? And how do they have such ascendant growth? And how do other companies just like them tank? How does that work? How does that happen? And he researched how it happens. He actually shows a graph here you can look with me about. And this is trending the growth of Walmart against the, the stock market and Ames Discount Store. Anybody remember Ames Discount Store? Maybe a couple of you. Why? Why only a few of you? Because they went uh, bankrupt in 2002. Look at where they land in 1992. Look at how they start. They're experiencing the same growth. And Collins would say, they have the same kind of strategy, they have the same kind of resources, they, they have the same kind of economic environment, they have everything, but one just soars, and the other one tanks. 
Why is that? By the way, I think this is a great picture of the moment we find ourselves here in Acts chapter six. Great growth, explosion, the Holy Spirit's coming upon, everything is going up and to the right, but they're at a moment that's critical for them. And Collins says, from a business perspective, though I would say this is true actually individually or however you wanna view this, he says there are five stages that lead to a demise like Ames Discount Store. And from his research, he's created basically a bell-shaped curve. That's a very bad bell-shaped curve, I just wanna say. <laughs> and if we split it up now into five different stages, one, two, three, four, and five, he says a company starts out with this sense of hubris. Like, oh my gosh, we're taking ground, you know, we're kicking it and taking names and we're doing all this stuff, go, 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 go. And it moves to this, look, we're still growing, what he calls the undisciplined pursuit of more. The undisciplined pursuit of more. Then it leads, and this is where I think the early church is, right here, to denial of risk and potential peril. Notice how we're starting to go down the slope. And when you get that, when you begin to feel that, you move to a place of what he calls literally grasping for salvation. You try anything. And oftentimes, you just reorg a bunch of times and think that's going to make a difference. And it ultimately leads to this last stage that I don't have room to write, probably can't spell, and it's capitulation. <laughs> Capitulating to irrelevance or literally death. Now, this is what many organizations go through. The question is, how do some, like pivot and move up and to the right, and how do others go to their own demise? But you can also look at this for your own spiritual journey. How many of us have been on this path? Where it's just like, all right, man, I, I can do it all. I'm gonna go do it all, and I don't care. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna try everything on. I'm gonna go to college, and I'm gonna party my brains out, and I'm gonna get a job, and I'm just gonna go, 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 go. But then you have some, you have some children, and they, they like humble you a little bit, and then they start asking you questions that you can't answer, and you feel that vacuous place in your heart and your soul. There's this rattle in you, and you start going, well, do I need a lake house? Is it about a promotion? Is it, is it do, I, do I need a new spouse? What, what, do we need a larger house? Like, what, what's going on? I'm gonna grasp for anything that can solve that empty place within me. And if I don't get the right answer, it's going to lead to what therapists would call despair, a capitulation towards, I guess this is just the way it is. How do the mighty fall, Jim Collins asks. Here are the five stages, and this is what's on the line for the early church. I really believe that. If they don't respond in the right way, they're gonna go the way of Ames. If they respond in the right way, they're gonna go the way of Walmart. And am I likening the early church to Walmart and its organization? I guess so. It's very conflicting though, I must say. But for the sake of an example or picture, that's what's at stake. So let's look. Let's look back now from verse one to verse two, what happens? So verse one, there's the complaint, right? A lot of growth. Now we're seeing this, the, the scale issue. We're seeing the strife between the two various groups, one that thinks they're the purest, the other ones that they view as, as sellouts, and there is an inequity in the di distribution of food. Verse two, so. So, I love that. It's like problem, verse one. Verse two, solution. 
So, the 12, this is the leaders, they gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So, there's your second so, right? Problem, verse one. Verse two, action. And then here in verse eight or seven, I should say, there is Resolve. So, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of, look at this, priests became obedient to the faith. Why do you think priests at this juncture signed on to Team Jesus? Why do you think they're, they're like, okay, maybe Jesus is the Messiah? Why? I think that line is in there because if you are a, a Jewish priest at this time, you all your life have dealt with the racial strife of Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. You've never been able to crack that night. You just know it's there. You stick your head in the sand. You just think I, it's never going to go away, so we're just going to deal it. But now this band of Jesus followers have figured it out. Well, maybe he is Lord. <laughs> because it was right there in the pain in the world of what these guys had to deal and lead with every single day. Westside, this is a beautiful moment in the heritage of your church and every church today. We should be so proud of our church for this moment of their leadership, their action, and what they did. This is, in, this is in our heritage. This is in our bloodline. This is a beautiful picture of what the church has been and at times is today and could be. It is phenomenal if we'll follow it, if we'll begin to live it out. And I want to not look at how, how to blow things up, right? I don't, the five stages of how the mighty fall. Here's what I want to do. I want to look at how the mighty move in a way led by the Spirit. How do the mighty move? I've got five stages I wanna walk us through of where the leaders of the church and the people together did something so beautiful. Number one, they listened. They listened. Now that's not in the text, but there is a gap between verse one problem and verse two solution. And the only thing I, I can surmise there is that they listened. And what did they listen to? Complaint. That word in the Greek is gungoso, and it's not a well-presented critique or complaint. It's not all the ducks are in order and it's kind and it's balanced and it's well-presented and all those things. No, it's a grumble. It's a muttering. It's a complaint. And who as a leader likes complaints? I don't. I'd much rather dismiss them or deny them. I'd much rather live right here, right? And when we listen, what are we listening for? And how do we respond? 
I mean, the apostles could have said things in response. Remember, the Hebraic Jews could have said to the Hellenistic Jews, well, you know, we had the same inequity under the Romans for years and you don't hear us complaining. It does not appear they said in response, well, could you at least acknowledge that things are better than they've ever been? You don't hear them saying, well, you know, I, honestly, it's because your Hellenistic widows, they're, they're lazy or they arrive late for mealtime. They certainly did say, well, if they can't have bread, then why not let them have cake? Do those sound familiar? Some of the responses and the reactions here in our day and in our time, of course they do. When we listen, what are we listening for? Pain. Pain. Not for is it well presented, not for is there great balance, not for am I well represented in, in their argument. No, we listen for pain. Ruby Sales puts it this way, the great civil rights leader. She said, when asked, what should those who have power, what should they actually ask that, that could be helpful? And she said, you ask this. Where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? Wow. And when you're in pain, and in your, you're in such pain, and you have to go to the, to the local ER, and you go in for your triage, and they ask you on a, on a 1 to 10 scale, how much does this hurt? And you go, I don't know. It just hurts. It hurts. It hurts. And that's because pain is an imbalanced emotion. And the worst thing that ER attendant could do is say, Really? What, what is it to you? And I'm like, it's 11. I don't even know. Really? Really now? Come on. I see your wound. Nothing could be more hurtful. Nothing could be less helpful. The ability to listen. And when you listen, you're using your power in a masterful way. See, these apostles, they had the power. They were a part of the power group, but they listened. And here's the big idea for the whole day. Nothing is more powerful than when those with power leverage their power for the powerless. Let me say it again. Nothing is more powerful than when those with power, leverage their power for the power lives. So where is your power? Where is your power? You have it in some measure, in some way, where you work, where you live, where you study, where you play. Where is your power? The apostles listened. Number two, they saw. They saw. That word overlooked in the text, it comes, the Greek is para-theoreo, para-theoreo, let me break that down, theoreo means to see, para means through, that's what it means, to see through. You ever been to a party, or you remember when we, we used to go to parties and stuff, right? And there's a large gathering of people, you see someone from across the room, and you, you like them, and you want to be seen and recognized by them, and you think you lock eyes, and you're like, hey, what's up, you know, you're going over them, and they're waving back to you, but really they're looking for someone right beside but beyond you, past you, through you. 
and you feel dumb, ridiculous, like you don't matter. Imagine if it felt purposeful. Imagine if it were repeated year after year, decade, generation after generation. The question of the Hellenistic Jews on behalf of the widows is essentially, do you see me? Do you see me? And church, if we could just for a moment lay aside all the political rhetoric and agenda and all the different things are just being tossed about in the sea of political emotion and everything, if we could just take Black Lives Matter and all, all everyone matters and, and everything else, and we just lay that aside, can our heart not break that we even have to have a phrase, Black Lives Matter? That would even have to be said, no matter its motive, its agenda, but that it would actually gain such life and have such staying power because there must be something beyond it and behind it. And it's really no different than in the 1960s in Memphis and the sanitation workers that the Dr. Martin Luther King went and ultimately was assassined for. There was a, there was a, a, a protest and you know the signs they held then? Simply, they just held up signs that said, I am a man. I am a man. Church, can we just let the phrase break our hearts? Do you see me? Do you see that I have dignity? Do you see that I have needs? Do you see that I have the same hunger pangs? Do you see that I have the same issues? Do you see me for who I am as a human being? And the apostles did. And they recognized the inequity of it. And number three, they did something about it. They did a restructure, right? They're like, we're gonna bottleneck this thing. We have our own calling, we have our own sweet spot. We're gonna be dedicated to the word of God and to prayer, but there are others among us who have gifts, who have a heart, who have an orientation to wanna to serve in these ways. Let's raise them up. So that's what they did. Number two, they didn't abdicate their accountability for this, but they gave guidelines for the selection of who these seven people should be. What were they? Two things, that was all. They should be people filled with the Spirit of God and filled with wisdom. That was it. Then they had a town hall meeting, which is beautiful. Things like this, you gotta bring people together and then ultimately, as we'll see, they had a feedback loop. This is great and masterful communication and leadership in this moment. They did something about it. Number four, they empowered others. They gave their authority away. That word responsibility, they gave them responsibility to select people. They set the guidelines, they're still accountable, but they gave away their responsibility. It was beautiful, and then get this, that takes trust. You have to trust those that you serve as a leader, and, and those that are being led have to trust your leaders, and notice this, it says the whole group was pleased. Amazing, the whole group. Love that. That requires trust. That requires those, the Hebraic ones, the ones in power, the ones who are being well-fed, to move from, I don't see why there's a problem, it's working for me, to wait a minute. If it's not working for everyone, then what's incumbent upon me? What do I, how do I leverage my power for the powerless? And everyone came together and they were pleased, and then what did they do? They were empowered, they chose seven, and if you noticed, all seven of those names are Greek. 
They were Hellenistic Jews, it appears, that were then tasked to do this. Now, is this, is this the biblical version of affirmative action? I don't think so. But I will say this for those asking the question, do you see me? I can tell you that action meant something. And it was really, really affirming for them to know that they were listened to, to know that they were seen, to know that, 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 that the leaders weren't just gonna release a statement about equity, that the church wasn't just gonna call a prayer meeting and then think the job was done, but actually they were gonna do something about it, they were gonna empower others to move out on it, and then lastly, there was celebration. I love this point. This is the great feedback loop. Everyone came together and they laid hands on them. There was a symbolic gesture of now they have the authority, now they have the power to do this. So, so, the church grew rapidly. Would it have done that? If they missed this moment, you guys, if the church fumbled this one, would they have grown to 33 million by the year AD 300? I don't think so. Why? I think this was a test. I think it was it like if, if the Hebraic and the Hellenistic Jews, if in the name of Jesus, they can actually come together and the whole group can be pleased. If, if, if that doesn't happen, then how in the world when they go to Samaritans whom they don't trust, share a little of the same bloodline, but not all the same, they're considered sellouts. You spit on the ground when one comes near. How are you ever gonna get those together? And then beyond that, how are you gonna go to the Gentile world where there's no shared bloodline at all? How in the world will the world know that, that God loves them and that this is for them if in this moment between the Hebraic and the Hellenistic Jews, they can't figure it out in the name of Jesus? How in the world? But they did. Nothing is more powerful than when those in power leverage their power for the sake of the powerless. It's the difference between this and that. It's what's needed where you live, where you work, where you study, where you play, and it's what God has done for you and for me. The Apostle Paul says, while we were still yet powerless, Nothing is more powerful than a God who would leverage his power for the sake of the powerless like you and me. And the A2 community from 2,000 years ago, they're living from not only that heritage, the heritage that they're creating in this moment, but from the heritage of heaven that says every knee will bow, every tongue will will confess. Every tribe and nation will hold a palm branch in worship to their king. So I ask you, where is your power? You might be a business leader and you have employees. Where's your power? You could be a parent. Where is your power, you might be an A2 community leader. In our A2 community, in the buoy, we're, 
We're trying to figure out a few things. How do we serve literally widows, single moms with lots of kids? There's an imbalance of power between those that are married and have families and those that are single. And we're finding the families have more power. And what's that doing with the singles in our community? We're trying to figure it out. The question for you and for all of us is, where is your power and for whom will you leverage it? And for whom will you leverage it? Let's pray together. And as you pray, the band's gonna come out. We're gonna sing together. If you could just listen to me here. We pray not just to put a cap on something. It's not punctuation. It's not a press release. We pray because we believe the Spirit of God moves and joins us in our prayers. And nothing is more important nor honorable than to join together in that practice. And so here on the Lenexa campus, on the side walls, there's stations with tables where during any portion of the worship, would you go over there and the prayer team would be so honored to join you. Speedway, I know that's how you already do it. And if you're part of the online community, just post your prayer on the chat and we'll pray for you. And let's pray now. So Father, we ask, would you show us where we have power to spend? Power to leverage, influence, means, finances, capacity, gifts, talents, even opportunity or privilege. That we would be like those that we share lineage with, the early church, who was like you from your deep heart. You emptied yourself, God. You spent it all. You leveraged your power for us, the powerless. May we do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.